schneller, schneller als gedacht. Abrupt climate change and the consequences for us and other living beings on our Earth. No one should be alone in the greatest challenge of our time. Episode 1 about the scientific dilemma of human extinction. Today I hold an interview with Professor Garmick Furzel. Thanks to Laura Upshaw for African Drum Dance on YouTube. This is the first German podcast on abrupt climate change leading to near-term human extinction. And this is the first podcast episode. And my first podcast episode at all. Okay, this is in English now. As good as I can speak English. I'm planning to produce alternating English and German episodes. So please share this with your German friends. I'm very much inspired by a few internet radio shows like Nature Bats Last with Guy McPherson and Mike Sleever or Lifeboat Hour with Carolyn Baker or the community-supported Extinction Radio. Many thanks to all of them. They helped me come through rough emotions dealing with this extinction subject. First of all, hearing those voices I didn't feel alone in these challenging times. This I wish to pass on to others, especially in the German-speaking parts. My name is Wolfgang Werminghausen. After study of psychology and working as psychotherapist, I had a trip into the world of finance for some years, developing investment strategies and long-term analysis of accounting statements. With the insight that the economic paradigm of infinite growth is a delusion and does harm ecologically, it was only a small step to Guy McPherson's thesis of abrupt climate change and near-term human extinction. I wanted to know all about this topic and invited Guy on his European tour to me in Münster, Germany. Today I'm honored to present an interview with the world's leading voice of abrupt climate change, Professor Guy McPherson. Please be with my talk in, in English. You'll see I'll improve it episode by episode. Guy McPherson is Professor Emeritus at the University of Arizona. He taught and conducted research for 20 award-winning years, before leaving the University for Ethical Reasons in 2009. McPherson established a homestead, continues his prolific writing and teaching from there, and goes on worldwide speaking tour from time to time. One of his recent books, co-authored by Carolyn Baker, is Extinction Dialogues – How to Live with Death in Mind. Because the topic of his presentation sometimes induced despair, Guy became a certified grief recovery specialist two years ago. Further information you will find on his blog NatureBetsLast at GuyMcPherson.com Guy is a teacher with heart and soul, as well as a profound scientist. Only a very few scientists are able to connect the dots like him and come to similar results. There must be something wrong with the science ignoring this disaster. I want to talk with Guy about the scientific dilemma of human extinction. Please enjoy our conversation. Hello, Guy. Hi, Wolfgang. How are you? Sorry for the mispronunciation of your name right out of the gate. Um, 
Try Wolfgang or say Wolfgang and on mine. Okay. <laughs> I hope Guy is right. That's <laughs> yeah, close enough. Now, this is my first podcast episode, and I'm very honored to celebrate that with you, Guy. I came in touch with you and your ideas about two years ago, and I've been honored to host you here in Münster, Germany, on your Europe tour in April last year. Today, I, I'd like to talk with you about the scientific dilemma of human extinction. This is the greatest challenge in human history, but nearly no other scientist is connecting the dots like you do. I want to talk with you as the scientist. I know you are a teacher with heart and soul, but I think a profound scientist as well. Okay? Yes, I look forward to our conversation. Thank you. More than 25 years ago, I've studied psychology. I think the way science worked changed a lot with the upcoming IT. The science produced paper with letters, but first of all numbers and very complex mathematical computations. For example, in psychology, multidimensional rotating clouds of data points. Only a few understood what's going on there, and the scientific statements became weaker, from clear statements to probability and uncertainty. What is your experience of that time, the 80th? Well, that's interesting. When I was in graduate school, I took courses in multivariate statistics because I was interested in plant community ecology. And psychologists had been attempting to take a, a multidimensional, um, multi-factor phenomenon and reduce it down to something manageable and understandable to simplify an unbelievably mm -hmm. complicated issue, make it so that, so that they could understand it and so that the general mm -hmm. public could understand it as well. And so I was taking my multivariate statistics courses in psychology departments. And the, the early efforts there were on um, reducing intelligence, human intelligence, down to a single factor, which ended up being the IQ or the intelligence quotient. Um, yeah, and it's, and it's uh, even math mathematical. It's not okay to compute um, averages like that. Right, right. I, I, I don't. I think anybody who thought about it for more than about ten minutes would conclude that today, that's taking the analysis too far. It's reducing something that's very complicated into something that is so simplistic as to be yes. meaningless. Yep. Because, for example. We have many different kinds of intelligence, and there are many different attributes of plant communities. And to just summarize them all up with a single number is ridiculous in either case. Anyway, that's how I got started uh, along the path of uh, simplifying the very complicated that is plant community analysis, analysis, and then ultimately recognizing that there are costs associated with oversimplification that you lose knowledge mm -hmm. and lose, more importantly, understanding. Yes, of course. And now, what, what do you think has changed since then? 
Well, I think there is a lot more awareness and understanding that the scientific enterprise went a bit too far. You know, it's been more than 30 years since my days in graduate school. But on the other hand, there's still this quest for plant ecologists and psychologists alike to simplify to the point that something becomes understandable, comprehensible, able to be explained in simple language to almost everybody. So I would say that there's this constant pull, this constant friction between attempting to simplify a system sufficiently to understand it and 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 on the other hand to deal with it as the very complicated system that it is yes. and 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 if you want to look a step further than human psychology and plant community ecology i think we get into things like climate science which is an incredibly uh, complicated multidisciplinary endeavor that is um, the 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 source and that that complication that multivariate nature is the source of much confusion, much denial, much um, argumentation about whether there is even such a thing as anthropogenic climate change or or climate change underlain by human activities. So here we get into this arena of trying to simplify something that's very, very complicated. And it, it causes great difficulties and causes un- misunderstanding in many cases. And I think the, the computer models are more and more complicated. And they r- rely on the data you put in it. And uh, With human extinction, there is a topic uh, where you have no empirical data. Uh, Nobody has uh, ever experienced human extinction and won't experience it. And you cannot prove it, really. That's exactly right. And and that's why I generally um, try to couch my scenarios and my predictions in sufficiently appropriate language. You know, ultimately we are animals like other organisms that rely upon habitat for our own survival. But you're absolutely right. No human will know that they are the last human on earth. So we won't know when extinction has happened. Um, We know now that we are driving a lot of species to extinction every day and we know that we depend upon habitat for our own existence but determining who's the last human is not an exercise i would like to participate in and not one that has a lot of probabilistic um, efficiency to it yes and i i don't think the the usual scientific tools are working with this topic extinction and so many scientists um, I think, don't understand what's going on. Right, and I think the, the biggest problem in terms of scientific understanding is that most scientists who study earth science or climate change, this this incredibly multidimensional system known as earth system science, most of the scientists who are studying that enterprise or discipline or field or whatever you want to call it do not have 
much background in biology. Mm-hmm. So as a consequence, and, and, you know, we have become godlike, the things that human beings do at this point. We make decisions about which other organisms will live and which won't, which will persist beyond extinction and which won't. And we make decisions about individual humans in terms of who gets to live and who doesn't for another day, another month, another year. And so we have, we have this, this self-generated hubris that makes us think that we can survive anything. And it, it appears to me that most of the climate scientists who have concluded that we will not go extinct are those who don't have much biological background because they can't couch our species in the same terms we put other species that is relying upon habitat for our continued persistence on the planet. Yes, that's right. Um, I think another uh, problem is that um, most people don't understand exponential growth, even scientists, I, I think. Even if you can draw an exponential curve, most people don't see the psychological consequence underestimation. You know, uh, sometimes you use the example of growing bacteria in a Petri dish. Uh, would you please explain this briefly? Yeah, that's. I think that's absolutely right. A longtime professor at Colorado University, Albert Bartlett, I'm going to paraphrase here, but he said something like the, the greatest um, misunderstanding of the human species is our inability to comprehend the exponential function. And really, we are linear organisms for our individual lives and for societies. The near future has always looked like the recent past. So we could extrapolate from what happened yesterday and last week to what's going to happen tomorrow and next week. It's going to look a lot the same. But then we look around and there are lots of examples of other species exhibiting the exponential function. And we tend to ignore them. So the example you bring up is the bacteria in the Petri dish and the the bacteria growing in a sigmoid or exponential curve until substrate becomes limiting. Substrate generally, in, in that case, is an analog for food. And the same applies to us. And we have experienced exponential growth as a human species on planet Earth. And the rate of growth has now slowed so that we're in the we're beyond the inflection point of increased rapidity of growth and now the the rate of growth is slowing at some point it will either equilibrate or it will do what happens to the bacteria in the petri dish the population numbers will crash catastrophically and in a very short period of time what happens with bacteria is they run out of substrate they run out of food and up until the point they run out of food It all looks it all looks great. If you're one of those bacteria, there's nothing but a but a universe full of food in front of you. That's all you can see. And then suddenly one day, there's not any. Mm. And it doesn't take very long after that before the bacterium dies. And the same applies to us. You know, we're organisms that require substrate, require habitat, including food and water and air to breathe, the ability to maintain body temperature. If we don't have those. We're going to die too, as individuals and also as a species. 
And I think we, we are not able to predict this uh, early enough. I looked, uh, you will know, Global Footprint Network. I looked there on the website and they say um, we humans on Earth are now um, using natural resources in one year, which one 1.6 planets would uh, provide for us. And using one planet, this was in the year 1975. Mm-hmm. You remember 1975? And then right. the planet was full. <laughs> right. And we had about five, four, four billion people on Earth. And what do you think when, when was the, the planet half full? Oh, I don't, I don't know. When did we have when did we have approximately three billion people on the planet? Or, or no, half full or two billion. Okay, nineteen twenty six. No, I was going to say it must have been the early nineteen hundreds. First year of my parents. Uh huh. <laughs> so it took forty nine years. And the quarter was about uh, around eighteen hundred. Uh huh. Nobody said, oh, attention, the planet will be full soon. We have to act now. And now you hear it everywhere, and we use 1.6 planets. Right. And nobody in the 1800s, when there were a billion people, could have even imagined that there would be limits to growth. And same thing in 1926. When the, when the planet was half full, nobody could have. If you'd have said that, you'd have probably been locked up in an insane asylum. For, for promoting such nonsense. And even in 1975, when the planet was full, it didn't, we didn't know it was full. You know, there, there wasn't uh-huh. a meter that went off. Said, Limits oh, of growth full. was published in 72, I think. 1972. And they right. said, well, when we are going on like that, sometimes <laughs> we'll have big problems. Right. So the alarm actually did go off in 1972 and it just wasn't heard. By most people, and certainly not by the culture. Yes, and and science is too slow. For, oh yeah, it's for, a very for, for that ex- exponential growth now. Right, and and so we're beyond the point at which we can comfortably turn off the switch and and conclude that we're going to go back to a one Earth world, and and part of that is because. Civilization only really works when it grows. Mm. You know, it, it grows or it crashes. Those are the models we have. It's it's a the, the the notion of a steady state civilization or a steady state economy uh, has, to my knowledge, never been demonstrated uh, since we since we went beyond pre-civilized societies. Since we went beyond hunting and gathering and started growing grains and using stored food to get through the tough times. I think once we, once we made that transition, uh, there was no going back. Mm. And, and now there's no going back. There's only the big crash ahead. Do you hear the interview with Kevin Trenberth, National Center for Atmospheric Research in Colorado. I did. He said in January that 20% of the global heating happened in 2015. 
one degree Celsius in more than 100 years and additional 20% in the last year. Wow, that's a jump. <laughs> right. And, and February was the hottest February ever. And, and, and because of the 10 year lag in maximum heating associated with carbon dioxide emissions, it appears that, that the next 10 years will be hotter than the previous 10 years. So all of this bodes very, very poorly for our near term future. And, and Trendberth's analysis is an excellent example of the exponential function. We go along for a hundred years and heat up the planet one degree in the last hundred years. And then in one year, we heated up 0.2 degrees, another 20%. That's astonishing. Yes. Science is part of industrial civilization with the illusion of infinite growth, with an economy and money system basing upon that. Science is fragmented, more and more specialized. Science is slow, underestimates exponential growth, is dependent on the consequence-denying system? And are you a non-science guy? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, my, my career and my life were and are deeply rooted in science or deeply rooted in reason. I am a rationalist. Mm. So I try to distinguish not between scientists and non-scientists, but between rationalists and non-rationalists. So I try to pursue evidence and go where that evidence takes me, as opposed to depending upon paranormal or supernatural phenomena and reporting them. Um, do, do I, as a human being, um, include some elements that are non-scientific? Of course. Uh, of mm. course, there's a whole bunch of things we don't know about the world, and I, and I hope that I'm not merely a left-brain automaton who is acting out according to a program in, in, in sort of classical robot scientific style. I hope I'm not that person. I hope that, that I'm able to express my emotions fully as a human being, as a human animal. Um, but, but I'd like to think that my decisions, that my actions, that my behavior is rooted in reason too. Mm -hmm. Even, I think even scientists have emotions, especially many climate scientists uh, suffer on depression and burnout. And there can also be acceptance and feeling released in some way. I want to ask every interviewee and now you for three brief advices to cope with the upcoming emotions with extinction and death in mind. Yeah, I think the, the most important piece of advice that I can give is actually the subtitle of one of my recent books. The, the book is Extinction Dialogues, co-written with Carolyn Baker. And the subtitle is How to Live with Death in Mind. And I think that's the whole message here, at least for me, is we know we're going to die. It's, it's, it's not a matter of opinion or debate. Every organism dies. Every individual dies. How do we live with that information? Well, I would suggest that we live with urgency, that we try to be, to express our humanity, to, to exhibit human behaviors, the best of human behaviors in the time we have left. 
Nobody guaranteed you a life. Nobody guaranteed you another year, another 10 years, another 100 years to your life. Live with urgency. Do what needs to be done. Be a decent human being to other human beings. I think there's probably five things instead of three, and it's all mishmashed together. Maybe you can edit something clever out of that. <laughs> well, thank you very much for that and for being in my first podcast interview. Thank you. Well, thank you. I very much appreciate it, sir. It's an honor. Schneller als gedacht. Many thanks to Professor Guy McPherson for his interview. To Lisa White, David Korn and David Krüger for their professional support. To Laura Upshaw for African Drum Dance on YouTube. In the next episode, I'll have an interview with the fabulous Jennifer Hines.